What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to another episode of the Quarterly Report Podcast, episode 170. So much to get to this week. So, of course, you all know I am Armand Lee. And after Saturday night, y'all know I have so much to talk about when it comes to Terrence Crawford. In our second quarter this week, I'm going to not only break down the fight, but the 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 nasty nitpicking, the nasty kind of politics that was on full display, not from Bud, but from Top Rank and Bob Arum and from ESPN. We're going to hold all of them account- accountable, excuse me, while also highlighting the special fighter that is Terrence Bud Crawford. All of that, plus a few years ago, I came on this show, this very show, and like a lot of people, right, whether it's famous or not, saw Carson Wentz and was like, okay, this guy is the future, this guy is the real deal. And then a awful injury happened. And since that injury, we have to recalibrate and we refocus how we talk, how we look, and how we assess the former top two pick in the NFL draft. Someone who fell from grace, something the NFC East is accustomed to seeing However, he is being treated completely different than other members who have had similar misfortune. All of that and so much more. But first, our number one topic this week. First quarter. I am going to try a technique, which is called start with love, right? I'm going to try to do it this this quarter specifically, but maybe throughout the show. It's a technique many of you all already know. Like if you have an issue with someone, Particularly if if either a someone is very defensive, right? They uh they're touch sensitive. Whenever any type of critique, even if it's helpful and will be beneficial to them in the long run, whenever you offer any type of critique criticism, it's always met with some type of pushback. So they say start with love or a or b. Excuse me, if you the person offering the criticism is one to be known as a nag. Right. Someone who's always complaining about something. People then typically turn you off. Right. So it's like the boy who cried wolf. If you're always saying something's about to happen or something's wrong, something's wrong. That becomes white noise. Right. So they say start with love. I don't know which category I fall into on this show, at least. Uh, But just in case, I'm going to start with love here when talking about Sam Presti. I'm watching television. And seeing everyone react to the the Oklahoma City Thunder. They traded Chris Paul for Kelly Oubre, Ricky Rubio, um, uh, 2022nd first round pick, and another player. His name escapes me at the moment. But a uh, second year player from Virginia, inconsequential. No disrespect to him. Could be promising, could have a breakout year. But thus far, you know, not a, not a name that anyone would would have any type of strong feelings about either way. And all after the, the reaction following the trade has been, my goodness, look at Sam Presti. Oh my God, Sam Presti in a small market, having his team completely ready for a rebuild. They've got 17 picks between now and the 2026 draft. And ah, so much praise for Sam Presti. So before I get into the quarter, Let me just say, Sam Presti 
and it should be noted because this is something that will never happen again. Sam Presti had the greatest three-year stretch of a general manager, talent evaluator, however you want to phrase it, in the draft that can ever be done. And I'm not, and I know you guys are like, oh my, a few weeks ago you said it's unreasonable to say that nothing can ever beat a player, nothing can ever like to, to shut a door on the future possibilities. And I get that. I did say that, and I agree with that. But you will have to tell me how any team, the same team, the same general manager on the same team can draft three, not one, not two, but three future MVPs, multi-year all first team All-NBA players, three future first ballot Hall of Famers in consecutive years. I don't even know how you would do it. Sam Presti deserves all the praise in the world for going Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, James Harden. That is insane. It's insane. I, I, how, how do you do that? So shout out to him for that. For sure. Like 100%. Shout out to Sam Presti for doing that. But Slim, the praise that has been laid at the feet of Sam Presti for all of these years has to, we've got to balance it out. I'm not saying you can't, you have to stop it, but let's have the proper context. He has a lot of picks. He has secured a lot of picks and in a small market specifically, that is very, very important for obvious reasons. Again, we talked about this when it came to Sam Hankey in the process in the Sixers a few weeks ago. There are three ways to get talent. And if you're in a small market, odds are you're not going to be able to sign one of the best premier players to your market in free agency. LeBron ain't coming to Oklahoma City. You know, Kevin Durant ain't just going to voluntarily walk to Oklahoma City. There's a way you can get a Kevin Durant. You can trade for him or you can draft him. Sam Presti already drafted him and he deserves a ton of credit for that. He drafted Kevin Durant, and Kevin Durant was an MVP player, and Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, James Harden went to one NBA Finals in Oklahoma City. And after losing to Miami in five games, what happened? They traded James Harden. They traded James Harden for Kevin Martin and picks Royce White, Steven Adams, Yeah, you train an MVP player, a guy who was already six men of the year. Your team had great chemistry. They all enjoyed playing with one another. James Harden didn't want some supermax contract. James Harden wanted $64 million. <laughs> it's crazy. Like before that TV deal, the numbers were way different. Like now we're talking in $200 million contracts. James Harden wanted a $64 million contract, Slim. And they traded him. Remember, like Sam Presti, we need to always remember that he drafted KD, Russ, and Harden. We should never forget that. No matter, no matter if you dislike him, no matter if you're critiquing him, start with love, right? That's a part of his, you know, Wikipedia page forever. But also, it should be noted. 
He traded James Harden for Kevin Martin, Steven Adams, Royce White. The fuck? <laughs> he traded James Harden. But it doesn't stop there. Serge Ibaka, every team, every single team would love to have Serge Ibaka on their roster right now. He is the perfect, perfect big man for today's game. It's so crazy how fast time moves because it feels just like yesterday. And if you are mid to late 20s or older, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody was ripping Serge Ibaka. Everybody criticized Serge. Why is Serge Ibaka shooting threes? Get your butt down in the paint. Learn how to shoot a fadeaway. Get a jump hook. Everybody was killing Serge Ibaka. Serge Ibaka is overrated. Serge Ibaka was never overrated. But you can't play Serge Ibaka and Steven Adams or Serge Ibaka and Kendrick Perkins. This shit don't make sense. The talent has always been there. The game was just slow. It lagged behind. So Sam Presti traded Serge Ibaka. The quintessential big man in today's game. He traded Serge Ibaka. Serge Ibaka, who every team, I believe he's a free agent this offseason, this, this shortened Frankenstein version of an offseason. He's a free agent, I believe. And every team will try to sign Serge Ibaka or find a way to make it work. Every team would what? Serge Ibaka. Sam Presti traded Serge Ibaka for Victor Oladipo. Now, I believe uh, another small piece, but the, the the significant pieces of that trade were Victor Oladipo and Serge Ibaka. Bong. Sam Presti gets Victor Oladipo, signs him to a nice contract, and immediately everybody's like, oh my gosh, this contract is awful. This contract is awful. Why would you get, why would you get Victor Oladipo? Oh my goodness. So what happens? The following year, Sam Presti trades Victor Oladipo and DeMontis Sabonis for Paul George. <laughs> for Paul's playoff P. Now what happens? Immediately, Victor Oladipo becomes an all-NBA player. Sabonis, two years later, is an all-star. He traded Paul George for two all-star players. One of them was an all-NBA player. Paul George gets to Oklahoma City. All right, we got it now. PG-13, Russ, bong. But he didn't stop there. Sam Presti didn't stop there. What did he do? He traded for Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo Anthony. As a Knicks fan, I can tell you, it is the rarest of occurrence. It is the rarest of moments when the New York Knicks ever, ever win a trade. The last time that I can recall the New York Knicks winning a trade was when we traded my favorite Nick of all time, Charles Oakley, to Toronto for Marcus Camby. And what makes that trade even more painful is that we ended up trading Marcus Camby a few years later, right when he was clearly becoming a star. I try not to talk about this. It's still, it's too, the, the cut is still too fresh. But the Knicks somehow win a trade with Sam Presti. The Oklahoma City Thunder traded for Carmelo Anthony, who was clearly washed. 
and they gave up what would become Mitchell Robinson. Again, there is nothing, nothing to enjoy about the New York Knicks basketball from any level. I've been to Madison Square Garden twice. So, like, I can't imagine the concessions are that much better now than they were when I went. The ownership is still awful. The players are worse. Everything about them is awful with one exception. Mitchell Robinson. He is the only good thing about that team, that organization, that roster, that front office, whatever. It's the only good thing. And we got it from Sam Presti. Think about that. How do you lose a trade against the Knicks when you are getting washed mellow? But whatever. Everybody was excited. Oh, man, if there's any team who could get give the Golden State uh, Warriors a run in the playoffs, it's the Oklahoma City Thunder. Russell Westbrook, Paul George, and Carmelo Anthony. Watch out. Watch out, my black ass. <laughs> The Bama's got bounced out of the first round by Utah. Easy money. Joe Ingles embarrassed Paul George. Russell Westbrook couldn't score over Gobert. And Melo, the whole team was just like, dog, go ahead, shoot. Sam Presti's dream squad. Look at the weird and warped way he got there. It fell apart. He then extends Paul George. Extends Paul George. Why? Well, you know, Russ wanted it. And they capitulated to Russ. Russ was at that time a homegrown star, a beloved fan favorite. You had to do what you had to do for Russ. I don't believe in that, but they wanted to keep him happy. They re-signed Paul George. That's what Russell Westbrook wanted. Bomb. year later, they trade Paul George. So I will offer more, right? I will offer more compliments to Sam Presti. Everybody gets something wrong. There's no, Masai Ujiri has gotten things wrong, right? R.C. Buford, Danny Ainge, you go down the list. All of the great front office guys have gotten something wrong. I don't know if they've gotten anything as wrong as the Harden trade, and I don't know if they've had a streak of errors the way Sam Presti has. But regardless, I will give Presti a compliment by saying when he makes a mistake, he doesn't wait. He doesn't try to run it back. He doesn't try to expose the mistake, the mistake to more people. Once he understands a mistake has been made, he is very good at trying to correct the mistake. Carmelo was a mistake. All right, bet. Bong. <laughs> We're just going to let him go. We ain't even going to try to resign him. Signing Paul George to that massive contract, trading two young players for Paul George, that was a mistake. Bong, I'm going to trade him to the Clippers. The Clippers are desperate. They want Paul George. Give me all of your picks, all of them. Russell Westbrook, we gave him a huge contract. We did it out of spite because we were upset that KD left. The fans love Russ. Russ wanted to be here. He gave it his heart. Is everything he had. All right, cool. We're going to give him this huge contract. Oh, man, we can't get out of the first round. Oh, man, nobody, everybody's leaving. Okay, boom. Houston, you want him? Give us Chris Paul. We'll take all your picks. So he's good at hitting reverse. He's, he hits the reverse. 
he goes in the reverse before everybody knows that he's lost. So he can still get a come up. But here's the thing. Having great picks is cool. But you got to cash them in. 17 picks in five, six years sounds great now. What the fuck are you going to do with that? You can continue to kick the can down the road. But at some point, you have to cash it in. I'm going to talk about this idea a little bit later in our third quarter about how we treat Sam Presti versus how we look at Sam Hankey or even Daryl Morey. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But the point still remains. Having picks is great in the vet. Like, yeah, everybody wants to have picks. Having a surplus of picks is great. But picks mean the most when you're drafting high, when you have a chance to get a number one overall pick, a game changer, or when you can fill out your roster, right? So you can always have an influx of talent around a core. The Oklahoma City Thunder don't have a core. They have Shea, Bong, cool. They have Dort. Steven Adams is probably out of there. Dennis Schroeder, he was traded already to the Lakers. Chris Paul is gone. Danilo Gallinari is a free agent. He's not coming back. The team who was the sixth seed in the Western Conference this year is not going to be the same next year. This team is not going to make the playoffs next year. So you can have all these picks. That's cool. There is also, we know about the salary cap. There is a salary floor. You have to spend money in the NBA. Who are you going to spend the money on? Again, Giannis ain't coming to Oklahoma City. Kawhi ain't coming to Oklahoma City. Anthony Davis ain't coming to Oklahoma City. Who are you going to sign? You have all these picks, and those picks are going to be $4 million, $3 million, $2 million, a million and a half dollar players. That's cool. That's great. Picks are great. But you're going to have to try to use those picks to get a big fish. And what we have seen from Sam Presti, he's great at drafting. I give him credit for that. He knows how to draft. Dog, just nothing else you can say about that. He knows how to acquire picks, but he does not, he has not shown the ability to be a successful talent evaluator of other professional NBA players. He traded Serge. Three years later, everybody wants Ibaka. He signed Steven Adams to that huge contract. I like Steven Adams, but the style of play that he plays for a center, it doesn't seem to be a successful one. Now, I'm not saying that Steven Adams can't go to another team and be successful. I actually think he can. But the perception in his value versus his actual production, there's a complete discrepancy. So you are paying him a significant number more so than anybody else would. And though he's a productive player, nobody can be productive with that roster that they're putting together this year. You traded Oladipo, you traded Sabonis to get Paul George. You traded a young, talented player in Mitchell Robinson to get fucking Carmelo Anthony. You signed Russell Westbrook to all that money. You then flipped him for Chris Paul, which was a great move. And then you trade Chris Paul for Kelly Oubre and Ricky Rubio? And another pick? I don't think Kelly Oubre is this awful player, but he's not a difference maker. 
three teams in three different years hasn't made the playoffs yet in, in any of those three years. It does not seem to me that the Suns got significantly worse when Kelly Oubre went out with injury. Does it seem that way to you? He's a talented player, phenomenal athlete, very fun, charismatic, fan favorite. And all of those things, being a fan favorite, we kind of dismiss it and brush it to the side. But that's important. You want the fans to have fun. You want the fans to latch on to someone. Kelly Oubre just, is, just had knee surgery. <laughs> so what's happening? I don't understand. I don't get it. Why the praise for Sam Presti? They haven't been out of the first round since KD left. The Miami Heat, mind you, in a shorter period of time, they went back to the finals without LeBron, without Bosch, without Wade. Is it is it really that hard? Is that really too much to ask for the Oklahoma City Thunder to win a round in the playoffs? The Nuggets were bad, then went to conference championships. The Rockets, undergone all types of changes, went to the conference championships. We know about the Warriors. Look at all the teams who have won a round, just a round. The New Orleans Pelicans. And yeah, I know they had Anthony Davis, man, but Anthony Davis, it wasn't like Anthony Davis had a lot of success in New Orleans. They went around. What the fuck is going on in Oklahoma City? What's the one constant? KD's gone. Not, mind you, KD left, came back, and they had cupcakes and all types of little stuff. They went out of their way to burn the bridge with the greatest player that organization has ever seen. And I get that there, was, there were hard feelings. You didn't have to embrace them. You didn't have to wrap your arms around them, give them the biggest hug. You also didn't have to go cupcake with it. You ain't had to do that. Who do you think signed off on that? Like, we we do this thing when it comes to Sam Presti, and it's weird, man, because we don't do it with other general managers. In fact, we typically are overly critical on other general managers. I've seen so many people kill Danny Ainge. I've killed Danny Ainge in the past. Danny Ainge has done far more than fucking Sam Presti outside of the three drafts. And look, everybody, they got a lick, man. Look, Danny Ainge would not be what Danny Ainge is now if Kevin McHale didn't hold him down. There's just no denying that. If Kevin McHale did not just gift Danny Ainge and his former team, the Boston Celtics, Kevin Garnett, who knows how we view Danny Ainge. But that's what happened. He got a break and he made the most of it. But Danny Ainge has done a lot of really, really, really smart GMing since then. What's the smartest thing that Dan, Dan, Sam Presti, I want to call him Dan. What's the smartest thing that Sam Presti has done since those three draft picks? Getting out of his own mistakes. If you're a Wizards fan, that sounds familiar. That's what people used to, that's the same way people used to praise Ernie Grunfeld. And I'm not saying that Sam Presti is as bad as Ernie, but you get the point. Like, there's only so much praise I can give you if all you're doing is rewriting your own wrong. You feel me? Like, we spend so much energy going into reverse and getting out of your own mistake. That's wasted time that we could be advancing to our overall goal. 
So while I started this segment with love, I'm going to end it with the way I really wanted to. Sam Presti, you've done something that I doubt will ever be duplicated. You drafted Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, James Harden, three NBA MVPs in back-to-back-to-back years. I don't think that ever happens, and you should be commended for that. You took a small market Oklahoma City team to the NBA Finals relatively early in your career. Congratulations. But for all of you all, all of you all, and it's been a lot of respected writers, columnists, people on television, analysts, you name it. People have been heaping praise onto Sam Presti for the longest time. So respectfully, I want to say this to you. Man, sit your ass down. Man, sit y'all motherfucking asses down. Sam Presti is not nearly as great. Thus, he has not shown to be as great of a front office executive the way y'all make him out to be. Particularly how critical you guys are when it comes to others. And we're going to get to that in our third quarter. But I had to bring Angry Man back for this because this joint was nuts. Everybody's talking about Sam Presti, and I'm thinking Chris Paul was a second team all NBA player last year. You mean to tell me the best you could get for him was Ricky Rubio, Kelly Oubre, and a future first? All right. I want to hear what you guys have to say, though. I know a lot of you all probably love Sam Presti. I I definitely know a lot of y'all love Kelly Oubre. Regardless, let me know what you guys feel about the trade, about Sam Presti, about the NBA offseason. Wherever your mind wants to go, I'm here to listen. Email me at quarterlyreport at gmail.com or tweet at the show at quarterly show, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E show. And make sure you guys head on over to Instagram, man. I have these weekly segments that are called Overtime where I'm talking about a topic that didn't quite make the four topics we talk about here in the quarters of the show, the podcast. So head on over to Quarterly Show on IG as well to get even more from me, even more of my uh, unique takes. Uh, I think you guys will enjoy that. All right, guys, we're going to head to the basketball court a little bit later. We're going to continue to talk about the wild NBA offseason that is happening. But we're going to make a quick detour into the squared circle as Terrence Crawford had another weekend of elite level boxing that has been uh i guess what the what we've all been uh, accustomed to recently as the year has come to a close we've had big name fighters on huge platforms and terence crawford is just the latest and it has me upset bothered and impressed here are my thoughts and our second topic second quarter let me first start by congratulating terence crawford on an, an impressive showing Saturday night versus Kell Brook defending his IBO welterweight championship in, you know, spectacular form. This was the longest layoff in Bud's career. I want to say it was about 11 months, a little over 11 months since he last fought. And again, I want to start this off just by congratulating one of the truly great boxers in the world. If you've ever seen Terrence Crawford fight, particularly when he was at 140, when he unified the junior welterweight division. And it was really, it wasn't close, right? Ndongo got him out of there. Gamboa a few years ago, don't even get me started on Devin Haney. 
Gamboa, I guess it was like six, seven years ago, was the last time that Bud was really, really tested. And he showed out. He held it down. And that was a star-making performance. But Ndongo, uh, Postal, you name it. He has, especially at junior welterweight, he showed the world why he's one of the best. And it's so frustrating, man, because, you know, hearing ESPN, hearing Bob Arum, and getting annoyed with how they carry it, it's as if I have to separate the fighter from the machine. I have no problem with Terrence Crawford. Terrence Crawford is one of my favorite fighters in the world. Deadass. And here's the thing. Most of you all probably agree. I know a lot of you, one of the reasons why, there are many reasons why I love doing this podcast, but specifically the boxing community. Man, y'all have embraced me, something serious. I love y'all so much for that, man. I mean, you know, people in the UK, people in Ireland, right? Like some of my biggest fans, or I shouldn't say fans, excuse me. That that sounds really, really nasty. Some of the biggest listeners to this show are across overseas, across the pond. And that stems from, you know, a, a love for boxing. So I appreciate the community around boxing. It really gets, uh, um, it's really dope to kind of engage with you all specifically on sp- social media. But I know a lot of you all feel this way as well. Like there is no angst among, like towards Terrence Crawford. I have no problem with the fighter, but God damn, man, ESPN makes it so hard. Bob Aram makes it so hard, and we're going to get to ESPN and Bob in moments, right? But again, I want to start off by illustrating, number one, there is no hate. There is absolutely no hate, no ill feelings towards the fighter, towards the man. But Crawford is phenomenal. And you saw some of that on display Saturday night. I want to make sure we underline that because no matter, else, no matter what else I go into, and I'm going to go into a lot here, but that is always at the foundation of any of my criticisms that has Terrence Crawford involved. He is a phenomenal fighter. He's one of my favorite fighters. I have nothing but the utmost respect for the fighter for the man, Terrence Crawford, period, bomb. Now, let's get to it. I... I almost had to turn the fight. Now, the fight didn't go very long. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I had damn near turned the television. I, I, I hit mute. Not not because, you know, that's typically how I watch these fights, right? Because, you know, with the exception of Andre Ward, that ESPN broadcast, their big fights is just really, really, really not my cup of tea. Let me just put it like that. I'm, I'm going to try to be as transparent as possible with you all. I'm not going to go super, super. I'm going to go hard on ESPN. But I ain't going to kill him, kill him. Because deadass, if ESPN offered me a job, I'd take it in a heartbeat to do anything in their boxing, you know, organization. So I, you know, I'm not going to try to kill him too much. Somebody could be listening and be like, oh, oh, damn, man, F him. You know what I'm saying? I'm not trying to do that. But my goodness, my goodness, how awful was it? It is, it is always entertaining. It's always interesting, I should say. When you listen 
to criticisms that have been brought by Joe Tess, Timothy Bradley, or other people on that ESPN broadcast for their fights. Notice, Andre Ward never said anything remotely disrespectful or slick toward Errol Spence on Saturday. And this has been a constant theme. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention, but last year, man, I forget how to pronounce the gentleman's name. The guy who Terrence Crawford beat just before he fought, you know, last year before he fought Kale. So after the American fight, he had another pay-per-view kind of awful showing, and he came back on ESPN, and uh, it was white dude, Ukrainian, and not a top 10 welterweight. And that entire broadcast, Max was talking a little slick. Not a lot, but there was some spice in there. Tess was talking slick. Bradley was talking slick. And Andre didn't. All of these dudes were talking about how, man, Spence didn't want to fight him. Spence didn't want to fight Terrence Crawford. Now, again, this is, this, is, this is the problem when it comes with influence. When you have a large platform, you have to be, you have to have integrity. You can't just start running around saying any old type of stuff. ESPN has, attracts all types of viewers. And if they promote the fight correctly, there will be people who are not boxing fans watching and listening to the commentary. So all of these people who are not diehard boxing fans, they will leave Saturday night or Sunday morning with the takeaway that Errol Spence doesn't want to fight Terrence Crawford and that no welterweight, for that matter, wants to fight Terrence Crawford. And that's just not true. I've been saying it on this show literally since like the second episode. How... This, this battle between Spence, this, this dream fight, if you will, between Spence and Crawford, there are a lot of huge hurdles preventing us from seeing this fight. Now, the biggest hurdle may, may be eliminated reportedly October 21st, 2021. There was some really, really good reporting. It wasn't even really reporting, really. Terrence Crawford, for those of you guys who did not follow what happened this week, Terrence Crawford's lawyer wrote an, a letter, published a letter, sent it to the athletic saying, yo, we are unhappy with how Bob Arum and company are promoting us. They're not giving us any big fight. They're not. And this is something that we've all said. I remember when Terrence Crawford resigned with Top Rank. I was like, bro, you killed yourself. You killed yourself. I hope the money is good. But because you're not going to fight anybody. And this is what is playing out years later. We all could telegraph this. This ain't nothing special that I saw. We all saw it. We all could say, dog, why are you resigning with top rank? And, it, and, and it's, it's important to also note, I spoke about this a few weeks ago. Let's be honest. Where do you feel Terrence Crawford is prioritized at top rank? Before they signed Tyson Fury, it was supposedly, right, Tim, uh, I'm sorry, Lomachenko and Bud. Like, they were 1-1-A. One, one but it was clear. It was clear that Lomachenko was the priority at top rank. It was obvious. They never tried to rush a pay-per-view fight for him. Lomachenko never fought on pay-per-view. So they established a kind of ground American fan base for him without ever having to offer up $70. They 
they have tried so many times. In the postal fight, I get it. At the time, that was the fight to be made at 140. But no one in their damn right mind would have thought that was a pay-per-view fight. Bob Arum said that he was kind of forced into doing it. I don't believe that shit at all. Quick side note. A lot of you all, or I shouldn't say a lot, but some of you all have asked over the few last few months, like, why am I so hard on Bob Arum, right? And this is, I appreciate that. Because I can really get, without really knowing, or without trying, because I, this stuff, I, lo- I like this stuff so much. I can go inside baseball when it comes to boxing, specifically when it comes to promoters. So people are like, yo, why don't you like Bob Arum? Why don't you like Bob Arum so much? What's the problem with top rank? So really quickly, I'll just kind of summarize it real quick. Say whatever you want about Floyd Mayweather, right? I'm not going to ever defend that man. Never will defend the person. Say what you will about the way he fights. Say what you will about his character, his integrity, or lack thereof. Bong. Not, I'm not, I had no desire. I, I'm not going to ever defend him as a man with some of the, the, the things that he has done. And I'm definitely, I don't have the desire to defend him as a boxer. If you don't like that fighting style, that's your preference. I'm not trying to change anyone's mind. But one thing I don't think any of us can disagree with is the business acumen of Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather is a tremendous businessman. And it's not a coincidence, at least in my mind, that his business sense flourished once he left Bob Arum. Now, we can we can 100% say, yo, Bob Arum built and established a brand for Floyd. But then Floyd kind of flipped the whole brand on his head. You know? It wasn't Pretty Boy anymore. Floyd just, I mean, 24-7 happens after he leaves Arum. He's going on, you know, 106 in Park after he leaves. I mean, there was a, a there was a very, very conscientious effort to kind of rebrand and, and do more promoting and show more of himself and his family once he left Bob Arum. And Al Heyman deserves credit for that, right? There's no, there's no denying that. But again, you may not rock with Floyd. Bong, cool. Hell, you may not rock with Manny Pacquiao. Bob Aaron was smart to just attach Pacquiao to Floyd's name. Because without Floyd, I don't know if Manny Pacquiao is as popular domestically. Obviously, Manny has fans overseas. Like, when when Manny... Manny is a, is a, a unique... I mean, Floyd and Manny are quite unique when you think about it. But... Manny is this huge draw, even years later, past his prime, because the Philippines love him. He's adored. He's a senator, right? And he has a very fun fighting style. But the fighting style alone can't carry you. And Manny has something, you know, that not that many other fighters have. And Bob Arum correctly just just tied Manny's name to Floyd. And over the years, you just kind of watched all of the talking heads for whatever reason. Even after, you know, Manny was laid out, face down, sleeping. People still were like, oh, man, he could be Floyd. It was the craziest shit in the world. But Manny, for all of his flaws, whether we're talking about the homophobia, whether we're talking about the suspicion of PEDs, whatever, not here to defend Manny Pacquiao, the man. Don't care to. 
Not here to defend Manny Pacquiao, the boxer. Don't care to. Manny Pacquiao knows how to make money. With or without Bob Arum. That cannot be denied. He too left Bob and is still making money to this day. Again, I don't care to talk about Floyd or Manny. Vaughn, let's leave them to the side. But one person who, not only I, but anyone who follows boxing. Miguel Cotto is one of the most respected figures in the sport of this generation without question. I've never heard a negative word about Miguel Cotto. Period. Period. Cotto left Bob Arum. Cotto left Bob Arum. And look at the success he had once he left Bob. You understand? Canelo, Floyd, he was ranked among the top five pound for pound past his prime once he left Bob and he was paid handsomely. Like, you, whatever, whatever issues you may have with Floyd, boom. I'm sure they're legitimate. Whatever issues you may have with Manny, boom. I'm sure they're legitimate. There isn't a, you can't think of a better gentleman, a better ambassador for the sport of boxing than Miguel Cotto. And he had issues with Bob Arum. So it can't be, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times. Nah, Slim. It's, I don't believe in coincidence. I don't. I never have, never will. You can't tell me that three of the best fighters, three of the biggest fighters of their era. Bob Arum had all of them at some point, and all three of them left, and all three of them have had success post Arum. Come on, Slim. Do the math. So that's why I have an issue with Bob Arum. And now you hear Bob. Again, let's go back to Saturday. I'm jumping all over the place. Forgive me. Saturday, Andre Ward, the most respected mind the most respected voice on that ESPN boxing uh, program. Never said one disrespectful or slick thing about Errol Spence when it came to Terrence Crawford. Tess, Bradley, I'm listening to them, and I'm just thinking, man, what are y'all talking about? It's obvious that Spence wants the, the Crawford fight. It's obvious. It's obvious that Bud wants it. And here's another telling sign. Spence and Bud, they've had their kind of back and forth on social media. They've, it's been some tense, kind of spicy little, you know, exchanges, if you will. But at no time has Spence ever disrespected Bud or Bud disrespect Spence. Not like that. You have never heard it. You listen to Terrence Crawford, and he was talking about Pacquiao. He ain't say nothing about Spence on Saturday night. He ain't say nothing about people not wanting it. He said the whole thing, nobody wants to smoke. But that's kind of like his calling card. He wasn't reckless about Spence. You understand what I'm saying? So Andre, most respected voice, never talks slick. But the actual fighter never talks slick. Hell, you look at Spence. At the start of that broadcast, he tweeted out like a laughing emoji. But that's it. They were bringing his name through the mud. Mind you, last year, when they were talking slick, Spence was recovering from a near-fatal car accident. This is what I'm talking about, man. Like, ESPN, again, I don't want to go too hard, but I'm going to go hard enough. Because if they offered me a job, I would take it. The dude 
anything up with their boxing broadcast. But they need the help. Slim, listen to how absurd the ESPN, like whatever's going on over there. And I know we've had a lot of talk. There's been a lot of discussion about the layoffs and changes at the top, whatever the case may be. And I'm sure there are very respected people, respectable people, fine people over there. Max Kellerman gets paid to talk for two hours every single weekday about basketball, about football. Thought Max Kellerman for like five, six years has been telling the world how Tom Brady is going to fall off a fucking cliff. In that time, Tom Brady has won two Super Bowls, went to a third, left the team, went to the Buccaneers of all teams, and have them leading or second right there in the division. Tom Brady's going to fall off a cliff. You have this man talking about every other sport. This man said he would rather have, if in the biggest game, he would want Andre Iguodala. <laughs> but they can give him 30 minutes to talk about the sport that he's actually an expert at. This shit doesn't make any sense. Nobody. And I like Max. I don't watch the morning shows. I don't watch for a take, but you know, sometimes they'll snip, they'll clip off some of the things and it comes on the timeline and I'll, I, I can watch it in 90 second intervals, right? I'm not watching two hours of first take. I don't have any desire to hear Max Kellerman talk about the NBA. I don't have any desire to hear Max Kellerman tell the world how Tom Brady is about to fall off a cliff when Tom Brady is still playing at an absolute high level. I don't, I don't, y'all clearly do. The highest rated, second highest rated show on that network, or right behind, behind PTI, whatever it is. It's a popular show. I'm not judging anybody. You like it, I love it. Bomb. But I'm just asking someone to explain to me why you would have Max Kellerman go on television two hours every weekday and talk about sports. That, you know, I think, I think it's fair to say, like, he, it may not be, you know, his strong suit. But there is no denying that Max Kellerman is an absolute expert at the sport of boxing. And he has a 130-minute show a week on boxing. And you have all of these big-time fights. All of these fights on your network. You spent millions upon millions of dollars to air top-break fights. And you don't have Max Kellerman with a, a pronounced voice? A featured voice? What are we doing? It doesn't make any sense. So you watch Saturday, and they spin all on disrespecting Errol Spence. They disrespecting Keith Thurman. Keith Thurman, dog, the only t- Keith Thurman somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea, sitting crisscross applesauce, smoking hookah barefoot. The only time we ever heard from Keith Thurman for the last year plus, he was calling out Bud Crawford. That was the only time we heard it. He wanted to fight him. Say what you want about Keith. You can't say that he ducking Er or Bud. We can all say that he was ducking Spence. We know he was. He ain't never come. Like Kendrick said with Big Sean. I'm Candyman. Call my name out three times and I'll appear. Keith made sure to call out Spence like one time. Never three. He knew what time it was. But... He was Keith Thurman, the guy who never called anybody out. 
just out of the blue was like, yeah, I'll fight, but now he was wild. He wanted a huge number to do it. But again, if I'm Keith Thurman, I'm like, bro, I have drawn on CBS, on Fox, the biggest numbers those networks have seen, whether it's boxing or MMA. And again, I know he fought Pacquiao, so he can't claim A-side, but he was a part of a, what, 500,000 pay-per-view fight? You can add up both of Bud's fights together and you don't come close to 500,000. So he didn't deserve that number that he was asking for, but people were just, they were killing him. They were killing Keith Thurman when he has actually called out Bud. You can't, that's, that can't be argued. But it's also interesting if you watch Saturday night. And this stuff stuck to me, man, because the whole process of what they were doing was so nasty. It it left like a bad taste in my mouth, man. If you watch Saturday's broadcast, it was the delay. That probably was the biggest takeaway. The boxing doesn't know how to do replays, so they should probably just get, the, get it out of here, right? But whatever. Damn near 30 minutes for a replay that they got wrong. <laughs> right before Bud's fight. You couldn't, you couldn't have asked for a worse situation. That was the biggest takeaway. The second biggest takeaway was how awful they were in terms of disrespecting Terrence Crawford's colleagues. But it was interesting for me, man, because, you know, they talked about Spence, and Spence is avoiding fighting Bud, which we all know isn't true. They talked about Keith Thurman, though the last thing we've ever heard from Keith Thurman. Keith Thurman clearly is unplugged. You know what I'm saying? Like I said, he's somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea somewhere. The last thing any of us have heard from Keith Thurman was saying, dog, I want to fight Bud. That was the last thing any of us heard. They didn't say a damn word about Sean Porter, though. In fact, the only time they talked about Sean Porter was to size Kell Brook. They were talking about Kell Brook, the feat of Sean Porter. That happened like six fucking years ago, bro. They, talk, they talked about that fight over and over again. But at no time did they ever say, oh, well, Sean Porter wanted to fight Bud. Sean Porter said they had an agreement. But then Bud said, nah, I'm good. So if we're going to do like the associative method, right, principle, if Spence is ducking Terrence Crawford, and I'm saying ducking in quotation marks because I think, again, that's business. And if you've listened to this podcast for any amount of time, you understand why Spence is not fighting Terrence Crawford. It's not because he doesn't want to fight Bud or Bud doesn't want to fight Spence. It's because the business has been bad. And we've been talking about this for years now. Terrence Crawford cannot, and I love the guy. I love the fighter. But people do not pay money to see Terrence Crawford fight. And it's because Top Rank has mishandled him so badly. So badly. People aren't going to pay money to see a trash fight when you can get good fights. But again, if we're going to go with the associative property, right? Spence doesn't fight Crawford. So he must be ducking him. So in that case, Bud must be ducking Sean Porter. Sean Porter, for those, again, who are not aware, was in the fight of the year last year. He was in A-side. But he fought his ass off against Spence. We all know this. Right? 
You can't act like Sean Porter was on a pay-per-view last year that was a hundred of 450 buys. 420 buys in that area. Now, Bud is smart. If I'm Terrence Crawford, and I'm like, yo, I gotta fight one of them. Well, Porter is the hard. I'm not gonna say he's the hardest. I mean, Spence is the best welterweight. It's either Spence or Crawford. Like those two, put them in a separate category. But Sean Porter is such a difficult opponent. It's such a difficult fighter. You saw what he did to Spence, and it's every single fight that Sean is in. Even the fight against Kale, that was a dog fight. The fight against um, Keith, dog fight. Like Sean is a pit bull. Is you're going to get mauled. He just fights in a different style. It's always the same with him. So Terence Crawford correctly was like, okay. I'll fight Sean. I don't think Terrence Crawford is scared to fight Sean, but the risk reward. Sean Porter, God bless him. He's B-side. Terrence Crawford, God bless him. But it's clear, he's a B-side. You cannot build an entire card around either of those fighters and get a huge draw. That's what Spence has been saying. You can't come to me. Bob Arum can't come to Al Heyman and say, dog, we're going to do 50-50, Bud versus Spence. Nah, y'all y'all have already fucked up Bud's name to a degree. No one buys a card for him. People do buy a card for Spence. And if Spence can get 300000 on the 6th of December versus Swift, then he in a completely different stratosphere. In this climate, and with all that's going on financially in this country, if Errol Spence can draw 300,000 pay-per-view buys. And I don't, I'm not dis- that I'm not discrediting Danny Garcia, but Danny Garcia hasn't fought anybody worth a damn in forever. Danny Garcia hasn't done anything recently to get this shot. So this is 100% about Spence. If Spence can get 300,000 people to sell out $75 the beginning of the month with Christmas at the end of the month, with all that's going on in the financial climate in this country right now, he in a different stratosphere. And I think we already understand it anyway. But the point still remains. It was wild listening to ESPN. Just go completely hush when it came to Sean Porter. While they're going all over themselves, falling all over themselves, talking about how Errol Spence is avoiding Terrence Crawford and all the other welterweights are avoiding Sean or. But I'm just I'm watching it on Saturday and I'm like, man, they you gotta have some level of integrity. I get it. You gotta play the game. Bob Aram signs the checks. I get it. But they didn't have to OD like they did. And then Bob Aram gets on the microphone and he's talking about Spence. He going crazy. But this fool, not only does he then start talking about Spence, he's then saying, I'm not going to go broke promoting Terrence Crawford. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the whole problem. This guy is so disconnected from reality. He's got his new prized possessions now. He's got Tyson Fury. He's got Teofimo Lopez. He just signed a new way. He don't care about Terrence Crawford. It's been clear about that. And he definitely hates Al Heyman. So here we are, boxing fans, seeing a, a 
And again, also, one last note before we wrap this up. I, again, I love Terrence Crawford. Terrence Crawford is a phenomenal fighter, one of the best in the world. Number one, him beating Kell Brook in that fashion, spectacular as it was, tells us nothing. What was the last thing that Kell Brook did at 147? What was the last thing he did, period? Kell Brook, honorable, right? Give him credit, fighter. If you go on my Instagram page, man, Quarterly Report, I've talked about this on my on my overtime segments, how Kell Brook, he moved up two weight classes to fight Golovkin back when Golovkin was the guy, the most feared man in the sport. Then he went down, fought Spence, and both cases had each of his eye sockets broken. Like, you know, like, that tells you about Golovkin. It also tells you about Spence, too. But more so, it tells you about the man, Kell Brook. He's a, he's, a, he's a warrior. He's a champion. But his time has come and gone. His time has passed. We have seen Terrence Crawford beat guys who aren't elite. We've seen it multiple times now. Dog, you don't get credit for beating Kell Brook in 2020. You don't get credit for beating Amir Khan in 2019. You don't get credit for Jeff Horn. Dog, like, come on. At welterweight, you have to fight somebody. Hooker by crook. And I don't believe that, again, I don't believe that Bud is scared of anybody. But the business is bad. Let's go back to Sean Porter. Like I said, neither one of those fighters are A-side guys. You can't build a card around them. So if I'm Terrence Crawford, I'm like, okay, this is going to be a hard fight. And the money that I'm going to get, I'm not going to get this huge number because neither one of us can sell a pay-per-view. And then whatever number that we do get, look at all of the hands that are going to be in that pot. Bob Aram's got to get his money. Al Heyman's got to get his money. All the people who work for those promotions have to eat. And everybody eats before Sean and I do. So if I'm going to do the cross-promotional fight, I got to get in there with somebody who can sell for real. Who is that? Oh, that's Spence. Spence is the one guy who sells big-time pay-per-view fights every time out. He's the one. But y'all coming at him with a 50-50 or 55-45? Get the fuck out of here. That's not smart business. And everybody on that broadcast knows that. Everybody on that telecast knows that. Andre Ward knows that. That's why he didn't say anything. That's why he doesn't talk reckless. Terrence Crawford knows that. That's why he ain't say anything. That's why he ain't talk reckless. Hell, you can see Errol Spence's response and Al Heyman's response. Ellerby's response. They don't talk reckless. You want to know why? Because they want to get that fight made. It's an old adage in boxing. You don't get a fight made when you start disrespecting each other in public. Bob Aram has no desire to make that fight. Terrence Crawford knows that. It's not a cool... Like, you think his lawyer just wrote that letter condemning Bob Aram in top rank right before his huge fight? You think that's just all... Like, that his lawyer just went rogue? Fuck no. Terrence Crawford is fed up. And he should be. And we called it on this show years ago. We called it on this show years ago. Will we ever get Spencer Crawford at 147? 
when they both are at their prime. I told y'all, man, COVID gave us a little bit of wiggle room, right? Because this year just kind of put everything off. So everybody kind of had to put their plans, push it back a bit. But if Errol Spence draws something spectacular on the 6th and he looks good, again, the car crash, there's a lot, there's a lot of going, there's a lot floating around Spence. But if he looks great and he performs well in the ring and on the pay-per-view buys, bro, we may, again, there's only so much that Spence is going to stay at 147. He's already calling out Canelo. I don't think he's going to fight Canelo. But Demetrius Andre has been talking. There are fights for Spence above 147. There's a lot of them. And Spence has already shown I can make money. Everybody wants to get in there with someone who can make money. Manny Pacquiao is just waiting. Manny don't want to fight Spence. Manny don't want to fight Bud. But he's got to fight somebody. And if you have the option to fight between two guys, <clears throat> one of whom is a pay-per-view superstar and the other isn't, well, who are you going to fight? If both fights are going to be hard, one fight you're going to make way more money than the other. It's not hard. This is not a difficult equation to figure out. Fighting Bud for Manny is probably a harder fight than fighting Spence. Let's just put it like that. Terrence Crawford, in my opinion, and it's hard to handicap because he hasn't been in there with anybody worth a damn at 147. But it feels like Terrence Crawford is the better boxer than Errol Spence. Errol Spence just presents a whole bunch of other issues because he's still a very, very good boxer. He's just also a huge puncher. If I'm Manny, well, we know Manny can punch. We know he can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody. But we've seen Manny go in there versus elite-level boxers and look like he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Manny probably going to lose either one of these fights, so you might as well get the one who, can, who gets you the more money, gets you the most money. This is what I'm saying. It's a chess move. Again, notice Al Heyman doesn't say shit because he knows what time it is. So... I'm thinking if Spence looks good versus Danny and he does well in the pay-per-view buys, he's probably going to fight Manny in 2021. And if he fights Manny Pacquiao in 2021, and that fight, of course, will do great, then again, you start looking. Will Spence want to wait? Because reportedly, Terrence Crawford can't leave his contract until 2021. At that point, if we get into midway through 2021, it doesn't make sense for Terrence Crawford, for Al Heyman, well, it doesn't make sense for Terrence Crawford, for Errol Spence, or Al Heyman, for them to have this fight with for, and give Bob Arum a chunk of money, when if you just waited some more, they can all eat without him. But the problem is, the Spence want to stay down at 147. I can only imagine the hell it is trying to cut weight for him. I don't think he does. And if Canelo does ever take the bite, and Canelo, we talked about this last week, we don't know what his position is. We don't know where he stands. But if Canelo was like, dog, I'll fight you catch weight, talking about Spence now, well, then you kiss the whole game goodbye. Demetrius Andre, like, they're, they're fighters. They are big-time fights waiting for Spence. And 
and we should get this fight. And everybody who follows the sport understands what happens. But ESPN and Top Rank specifically, man, that left a bad taste in my mouth Saturday night because they could have educated. They could have tried to do something besides make someone out to be a villain. If you are a news outlet, which ESPN likes to, to act like they are, you have an obligation. Not for not propaganda. It was it was really bad. It was disgusting. And unfortunately, it overshadowed a stellar performance, albeit versus, you know, non-elite talent. But still a stellar performance by one of the sports best. I want to hear what you guys have to say. Boxing fans, hit me up, man. Do you think Spence and Bud ever happen? That's the question I want to know. Do you guys think it ever happens? I'm not sure. I'm not even 50-50. I'm probably leaning 60-40. Leaning it doesn't happen. But again, money talks. That's one of the reasons why I don't think it's going to happen because money is going to always talk to Spence. But I want to hear from you all. And if you're not a boxing fan, is there anything that I may have, you know, maybe was I too inside baseball for that? Is there something that you want to know more about these two or anything in the sweet science for that matter? Let me know. Email me at quarterlyreport at gmail.com or tweet at the show at quarterly show. Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E show. All right, guys, you heard the horn. That means it is halftime and halftime this week. It's time for my absolute favorite segment and the segment that gets more responses than anything else. When two legends, two living legends meet, and those legends are Bill Walton and my beautiful daughter, for a segment that I like to call Bill Walton's Words of Wisdom. Check it out. It's time now for Bill Walton's Words of Wisdom. Someone needs to check and see if it's past Kristen Leitner's bedtime. Yikes. Oh my gosh. Michelangelo, thank you so much. I believe in science and evolution. I've been to the Grand Canyon. Oh, did you read Kareem's Time Magazine piece on Kanye and Beyonce? No. It was excellent. Check that out. You know what Google is, right? When I think of Boris Diaw, I think of Beethoven in the age of the Romantics. Charles Darwin, who came up with so many different scientific theories and he went to the Galapagos. And that was... Bill Walton's Words of Wisdom. Yes, another installment of my beautiful daughter reading some of the most bizarre yet hilarious quotes from one Bill Walton. Those are 100% quotes, by the way. Like, we're not making those up. Those are just literally things that Bill Walton has said. Again, depending on how old you are, it's hard to believe. But Bill Walton was calling NBA Finals games. Like, prime time NBA on NBC matchups. He was calling finals, conference championships, Sunday matinees. He then went to ESPN and was calling some of their bigger games. Like, he does the thing with Dave Pash now on, like, Pac-12 basketball on random Wednesday, Thursday nights, which is phenomenal. The only college basketball that I will watch outside of, like, tournament play. But he was, like, a staple. And it's hard to kind of wrap your mind around it now because announcers – they don't like to have personality. They take themselves so seriously. But Bill Walton, man, if you are like me, if you share my sensibilities, you love to laugh while watching sports. 
that sports doesn't have to be so serious, right? And it's, it's kind of the whole premise of this podcast. So if you're listening to this, I appreciate you. And I and I would have to imagine that you kind of share those same beliefs that I do. But yeah, man, there was never a better basketball game. Announced crew. God bless the dead. Steve Snapper Jones, Bill Walton, and whomever was doing play-by-play. It was so many. It was Marv sometimes. It was other guys. Whatever. Bill Walton, man. God bless him. I love him. And I wish he was calling more things, not just college basketball. Put Bill Walton on the news. I would watch the joint. I would watch way more news cover. Dog, look at the pundits on cable news. You mean to tell me that Bill Walton couldn't offer up something more? I mean, informative, probably not the way, the word I would use, but damn it, he would keep retention high. High being the key word. Regardless, that was halftime this week. Hopefully you all enjoyed that. But the show must go on, man. Halftime adjustments have been made. So we have two quarters left, and we're heading back to the hardwood. And talking to one of my homeboys after I recorded the first quarter, he asked me a question, and we hinted at it during the first quarter about my criticisms, my critiques of Sam Presti compared to my adoration for Sam Hankey. We're going to discuss that and all of the problems that are seemingly facing the Houston Rockets. It's our third topic this week. Third quarter. Right off the bat, first things first, I want to make sure I get something completely clear. Because if you are a newer listener to this podcast, you may feel like this is some type of Houston Rocket like fan pod. Because I have talked about Daryl Morey and the Houston Rockets and Sam Hankey via extension for a significant number of quarters over the last month and a half, two months. And I promise you, this is not a Rocket-specific podcast. This isn't even an NBA-specific podcast, though obviously I'm a huge fan of the league. But it, it, it just is that the Rockets, those figures specifically, Morey, Harden, Westbrook and again Hinky by extension they're just so dynamic and they're so intriguing and interesting the entire China fiasco of last season started because of Daryl Morey in a tweet a single tweet started an entire uprising and movement and counter counter protest if you will against the NBA from one of their general managers you understand and that's kind of they're, they're so, I wouldn't even say vocal, but they're, they're significant figures in this entire soap opera that we call the NBA. And they're interesting personalities, they're interesting characters. And one thing about the NBA that I love is that the players are so accessible that you see and you know and you learn so much about them. Good, bad, otherwise. So I want to make that as a disclaimer before we get started. This is not a Houston Rockets podcast, despite the fact that I have talked about these this team and they these figures for quite a while recently. That's number one. Number two. I had an entire rant for the first quarter, right? The first half was over an hour long because I had two long rants. After I recorded the first quarter about Sam Presti and my critiques of him, you know, I'm on this group group chat with uh, four of, the, of my close, you know, 
homeboys, man, guys I used to work with uh, for quite a while. We're all now scattered across the country. Um, but one of my homeboys in particular, shout out to my guy Ian McCoy. He hits me up, and he's like, "Yo," because I'm 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 talking about Sam Pressy, and obviously they haven't heard it yet. But I'm just kind of giving them my preliminary thoughts on him as a general manager. And he's like, yo, Armand, how are you going to hate on Sam Presti? He's basically doing what Sam Hankey did. And you've been complimenting him, you know, on your show. And again, shout out to my brother, Ian, man. I appreciate that because, number one, I, I don't I don't view them as the same at all, though I do I do see the similarities. But number two. It lets me know that I need to be a little bit more clear. I touched on this a bit in the first quarter when I said that, you know, certain general managers get killed for doing things that Sam Presti is currently doing. There is no doubt in anyone's mind that the Thunder are rebuilding. They are not trying to win games. I think they're they're trying to put on a... a, a, I imagine they want and they imagine they feel that they have a somewhat competitive roster. Uh, we all think as we think shy is a phenomenal young player. A lot of people in this region love Kelly Oubre, though. I, again, I don't think Oubre of as a impact player and Ricky Rubio is a fine player. Again, Rubio and, and Oubre, this will be their third team in three different years. They're journeymen. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, you need journeymen. You need quality NBA players to win games. But that that can't be the focal point of trading away an all-NBA player. So, in my mind, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, email me at quarterlyreport at gmail.com. Tweet at the show, quarterly show, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E-S-H-O-W. Um... Two things, for me, separate Sam Presti and Sam Hankey. Hankey was honest. Good or bad, and it ultimately cost him in the end, he was completely honest on what he was doing. The strategy for the quote-unquote process was, we're not trying to win. We're not going to pretend to try to win. We're going to lose, and we're going to lose so we can get number one overall picks, or we can increase our uh, percentages to get the top overall pick so we can draft the legit game changer because we don't believe that we can sign them in free agency and, you know, we'll, we'll acquire picks and possibly make a move via trade. But the number one goal is to attain legit superstar talent and our path to doing that is via the draft. Sam Bresti is doing the same thing. No one, no, no big time free agent is going to sign in Oklahoma City. They have two ways to acquire top talent: drafting and via trade. They've drafted again. We talked about it: three MVPs in three straight years, and they've traded for a talented players. Paul George is a talented player. Victor Oladipo was a talented player. They've done the trade route. They've got seventeen picks in the next five years. Or so. You do the math. They're not drafting all of those guys. They're gonna. They're, they are well positioned to trade for the next disgruntled superstar. 
The problem is, will they be able to get said superstar to re- resign there? It does not feel that they are going to be able to do so. But again, there have been talented players to resign in Utah. There have been t- talented players to resign in San Antonio. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. It just doesn't seem very likely. So again, they're going via the draft. They've got all the picks in the world. More picks in five or six seasons than any team has ever had. The problem is Sam Bresti isn't saying it. He's not going to say the quiet part, I suppose, out loud. Even though, again, Hanky wasn't quiet about it. It was clear. And again, it cost him. Maybe he should have been quiet. Maybe he shouldn't have been so honest. But there is no difference. So all of the people who hated the process, I have a question for them when they they heap praise on Sam Presti. What's the difference? They traded an all-NBA player for two journeymen, a second-round pick, and a future first. I am so interested to find out what Russell Westbrook, what value he may have. And we're going to get to Houston at overall and their kind of implosion. But if Russell Westbrook nets you a future first and a journeyman, then I have to question what the hell Sam Presti was doing. Because Chris Paul, they both have bad contracts, but Chris Paul is significantly better than Russell Westbrook. Chris Paul game ages better than Russell Westbrook. And I just think from not only a talent perspective, but just overall, you'd much rather have Chris Paul than Russell Westbrook right now. So the haul for Chris Paul should be significantly greater than the haul for Westbrook. Again, Russ hasn't been traded. We don't know what's going to happen with him, but if he is, I'm, I'm keenly, keenly paying attention to the return of that. Because Ricky Rubio, Kelly Oubre in a 2020 second first round pick can't be the best that you could get for Chris. I just, I don't believe that personally. But I digress. Again, Sam Hankey was honest. Sam Presti, he's playing the game. Cool. Number two, Sam Hankey never traded an all-NBA player. How many all-NBA players has Sam Presti traded, whether they were current or future? Just We just talked about Chris Paul. Bong, traded him. I don't think that's a good haul. I think Sam Presti probably, or excuse me, Sam Hankey would have gotten more for Chris Paul, personally. I also don't think Sam Hankey, Sam Hankey would have traded for Carmelo Anthony. I also don't think that Sam Hankey would have traded young players, Oladipo, future All-NBA player, Sabonis, future All-Star, for Paul George. I don't think so. So there are a number of things, again, when it comes to evaluating talent, like identifying, again, I use certain tools. I'm huge on analytics. Sam Presti has come out publicly, said he's not. We know Hanky is. And it, it's not, the, I'm not saying you have to, but I am saying it helps. There are a lot of people who thought that James Harden was just the product of playing with Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant. There are a lot of people who thought that Carmelo Anthony was still a good player 
when the Thunder traded for him. There were a lot of people who thought that Paul George was one of the better players in his league, like one of the elite-level players. So trading for him was a smart move. There were a lot of people who felt these type of things. And when I, all I am saying, there are a lot of people, you know, so all I am saying is I don't believe that Hanky and the resources that he uses would have felt the same way when it came with Presty. But ultimately, the difference is Hanky was honest. Presty's playing the game. Hanky was all about value. You can say that Presty was about value. He just didn't understand the value of certain players. And that's where the differences lie for me. But I want to look at Houston now overall because I've heard criticisms of Daryl Morey over the last week. And they were saying, basically, this is what happens when you are a numbers guy, when you treat players as assets, when you treat an, an NBA team like a business, this is what you get. And I reject that at its core. I've heard for the majority of my life, professional athletes over and over time and time again say, that this is a business. Now, whether they are seduced or fooled into thinking it's anything other than that, that's unfortunate. Because it's clear. When you go to a team, they may talk that family shit. They may talk all that foxhole bull, whatever. It's a business. And no matter what the sport is, they will use you until you are used up. So one of the reasons why I rock with LeBron so much, LeBron was like, dog, if you want the if you want the privilege to pay me millions of dollars, you better make sure you are. I'm going to keep my foot on your neck. Pay Tristan Thompson, pay J.R. Smith, pay Iman Shumpert, pay Richard Jefferson, pay everybody. I don't care. You're a billionaire. Do it. If not, I'm bouncing. I love that. All of, most of these dudes are billionaires. The overwhelming majority of these guys are billionaires. These teams, the Utah Jazz was sold for multiple billions of dollars just a few weeks ago. They got the money. So if I'm a general manager, I, of course I'm looking at this as a business. I'm trying to win. Everyone should have one singular focus. Of course, everybody wants to get paid handsomely along the way, take care of their family, take care of themselves. But ultimately, the number one goal that everyone associated in that league should be to win a championship. I don't want a general manager out to be friendly. People were mad at Masai Ujiri for firing Dwayne Casey. Newsflash, Nick Nurse is the better coach. People were mad at Masai Ujiri for trading away DeMar DeRozan, newsflash, Kawhi Leonard is a better player. Those moves were calculating, calculated, excuse me. Those moves were not the best for friendships and relationships. DeMar DeRozan said he ain't talked to uh, Masai Ujiri since. That's cool. Your feelings were hurt. I get it. It was best for business. There is no denying it. That may suck as a player, but as a fan, that's what I want. I don't want to get messed up. I don't want you can you can muddy things up, man, with your feelings and emotions. Emotions get in the way sometimes. If you truly have a singular focus, that's what I want. 
Go for it. We all watched this spring, summer, the last dance. We all love that, whether you want to call it a documentary, whether you want to call it fan art, whether you want to call it propaganda, whatever. It was phenomenally done. Jerry Krause was about business. Hell, Michael Jordan was about business. Scottie Pippen signed an awful contract. Jerry Krause was like, dog, you signed it. Michael Jordan, he didn't do what LeBron did. He didn't say, man, nah, I'll pay him. You know what Michael Jordan said? Scotty, get your ass back on the court. Like this idea that we want this like family environment and that general man and Daryl Morey is somehow wrong for treating players as assets. Nah. The seven seconds or less Phoenix Suns looked like they had a family, you know, environment. Guess what? Never went to the finals. That Sacramento Kings team, the Weber, Vlade, Sacramento Kings team, loved each other. Never went to the finals. Dog, give me the teams that hate each other. Give me the teams where the GM is actively looking to make moves. Or LeBron. Every team LeBron goes to, he's like, all right, man, let's. we need to get better. You can move him. Every time. And no one holds it against him. Because it's a business. LeBron has a goal. He has objectives. He wants to win. And I'm not, this is not a Jordan-LeBron comparison. I'm just saying. Jordan was the same way. Dennis Rodman was on the San Antonio Spurs. Avery Johnson, David Robinson, they were doing Bible study for the team. Dennis Rodman was like, nah, I'm not rocking with that. They let him go for Will Purdue. The worst trade in NBA history. They let go of talent for this family environment, and it did not work. The Bulls got him. Dog, you need to go to Vegas <laughs> on a, you know, go ahead and get it out your system. And then come back and be ready to go. It's a business. So Daryl Morey treating players like a business, treating them as assets, having them play well, and then say, "All right, man, it's time for you to go. We have a better version. We we can do something better with it." I don't, I don't fault him for that at all. In fact, I wish more owner or general managers would do that. I don't fault Sam Hankey for being honest. As someone in the media who has interviewed players before, and has complained about you know, generic responses, coach speak, all of the same stuff, the boring responses. I like it when people are honest because then it's like, okay, I know where you stand, whether I like it or not. It's beside the point, whether you agree with them or not, it's beside the point, but at least it's honest. All I can ever ask for anyone, no matter what we're talking about, I want to know where you stand. What is your position? Because now, if I'm armed with that, I can then make my decision on what I need to do, right, subsequently. I don't have a problem. I could disagree with you, but if I know where you stand, I know what time it is. Like, I don't want to go to, you know, a, a, a situation that could be combustible with a homeboy. He's like, dog, I got your back regardless. And then if it pops off, I'm looking around for my man. And he over there like, sorry, bro, I ain't really trying to scrap right now. I got this nice shirt on. Nah, Slim, you, that's, that's not what you told me. I want to always know where you stand. Sam Hinkie gave it to us straight up, dog. We aren't going to win. We want to have the number one overall pick. 
And you look at Houston now. There are talks that they may trade James Harden to Philadelphia. And wouldn't that be like perfect full circle synergy, right? It's already odd enough that Daryl Moore is in Philadelphia. We talked about how the, the odd route that Philadelphia took to get there. But imagine if, if James Harden goes to Philadelphia. I would imagine it would be for Ben Simmons, but it may be not. Like, that's the difference for me between Hanky, Maury, right, and Presti. Presti had the young talent on the roster, and he traded them for a Paul George. A Paul George who, despite the fact that everybody now is getting their jokes off on, Paul George is the same player. There hasn't been any difference between Paul George now and Paul George in Indiana. It's the exact same player. In fact, his best year in his career he had in his last year in Oklahoma City. There's nothing changed except for the perception. Playoff P is now a joke. Where years ago, people thought playoff P was a real thing. Gatorade endorsements. You understand? To me, it seems like Presti is more easily moved with perception as opposed to productivity. And that may seem like a slight, small thing. But if you are a number guy like I am, that is huge. Because no matter what happens, the, pro the production is going to be what it is. Production only changes, like, over the years. Perception, that can change in an instant. I remember vividly people thinking that Kawhi Leonard was only a role player. I, re I vividly remember having these debates. I vividly remember people telling me that Eric Gordon was a better player than James Harden. I remember that. That's perception. That's not production. It's like when you were in math, man, show your work. And you're in calculus, algebra, whatever. Show your work. When I have the numbers on my side, I can always say, like, nah, the production is here. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so anti-Presti, because I see the way he's covered as opposed to the way Daryl Morey has been covered. Back to Daryl Morey. The people who think that Daryl Morey is some type of robot and the reason why Houston never succeeded is because he never uh, factored in the human element into anything. That may be true. I don't necessarily agree because, again, look at the Rockets the last five years. They didn't win a championship. They didn't get to the finals. How many teams over the last five years were more successful than them? Sure, Golden State. Sure, whatever team LeBron was on. Toronto, that's three. There's only one champion every year, right? So the, 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 the way we've dismissed the success of that Rockets team does rub me the wrong way. But I do find it interesting for those who are critical of Daryl Morey for those who say, oh, man, Daryl Moore, he, he treats players like they're assets. He doesn't treat them like they're humans. Isn't it odd that everybody wants to get out of Houston now that Maury is gone? Never once heard James Harden ask to be moved while Daryl Morey was running the ship. Never once heard P.J. Tucker complain while Daryl Morey was running the ship. Not once. 
Russell Westbrook has demanded a trade. I don't think it's a coincidence that it happens once Daryl Morey is gone. So it's weird, right, that we we criticize Daryl Morey for not being the guy to factor in human, you know, emotions, the human component, the guy who's detached, the guy who doesn't build relationships. Yet the moment he goes, Houston is imploding right before our eyes. Again, I don't believe in coincidence. Maybe you do. But I do think it's odd that so many people in the NBA kind of landscape have taken, taken, you know, shots, have taken issue with how Maury and, again, his former right-hand man, Sam Hankey, have handled business. Have they won a championship? No, they have not. Have they gone to the finals? No, they haven't. And if that's your ultimate governor, then cool, bro. Like, God bless you. Like, that's that's fair. I don't think it's reasonable, but that's your opinion. But there's more than one way to skin a cat. And when I look at how innovative and creative those two men were, they were a hamstring away. Think about that. They were one hamstring. In the NBA, they weren't an ankle. They weren't plantar fasciitis. They weren't a, uh, an Achilles, a knee, an ACL. They were a hamstring away from beating the Kevin Durant, Steph Curry Golden State Warriors. Think about that. And we have looked upon them as a failure. I don't know what happens next for the Houston Rockets franchise, but man, their run has been one of the most interesting, intriguing, and fascinating runs that there has been. And I love them for it because they went for it. They were not afraid to be different. They saw Golden State as their main rivals, and they they went after them with a vigor that no one else did. They did not have a LeBron. And I like James Harden. He ain't fucking LeBron, not any, cl- not anywhere close, and we all know that. But with James Harden, flaws and all, as your centerpiece, they gave Golden State a run multiple times. The one team that you can say was a rival to Golden State, maybe rival isn't really the word because they never won. But they they wanted Golden State, and they tried, and they were close, but they never could get over the hump. You may look at that as a failure. I look at that as fight. I like that, man. And for that, because it seems like Houston is done. Houston, y'all got a problem. You feel me? It seems like we at that point where this is this kind of run, this James Harden era of the Houston Rockets is coming to a close. If that's so, I hope we look back on it and give these guys, particularly Daryl Morey, credit, not just for going, not not for following perception, not for doing things because that's what everyone perceives the right way. Not training for Paul George just because, but say, fuck it, we gonna make P.J. Tucker our power forward. And P.J. Tucker ended up being a hell of a player. 
They put Robert Covington as a center. Like, think about it. Look at what they have done. The innovation they have created. That's, to me, the biggest differences between them and the Oklahoma City Thunder. Even though Oklahoma City continues to get showered with praise. Despite the fact that they've actually done less, done less than Daryl Morey, James Harden, and the Houston Rockets. It's just interesting to me. But as always, I want to hear your guys' thoughts. I'm contrarian by nature, right? This is not an act. This is not something that I'm forcing myself to do. I just look at things a little bit differently. Maybe you don't. If they, if you don't, if you think I'm wrong, that's cool. I want to hear from you. Email me at quarterlyreport at gmail.com or tweet at the show at quarterly show. All right, guys. Three quarters are in the books, and it's time now to step onto the gridiron. A few years ago, I was heaping praise myself onto one of the younger NFL quarterbacks in the league, and it's been a rough go of it for this young man ever since. What the hell is going on with Carson Wentz and the Philadelphia Eagles? It's my final topic. Fourth quarter. To continue the theme of starting with love, I want to rewind. I want to rewind about two, three years ago when Carson Wentz first came onto the scene. Went to this little known school, never seen him play in college. Heard all the rumblings about him coming into the draft. And in his first year, it was like, okay, I see it now. This guy's pretty good. In fact, this guy's really good. And you could tell initially, I mean, immediately almost, that Carson Wentz was the potential or had the potential to be one of the faces of the league, future faces of the league. Like, you could see it immediately. And then in his second season, it all came, it all fit. It all came to life. I mean, imagine how we all react. I'm not going to say to Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes is such a unique situation. Just we'll put him to the side because he's different, different. But when we all watch Kyler Murray this season, his second season, you're like, oh, my goodness, look at him. When we saw Deshaun Watson in his second season before, you know, Deshaun Watson a little bit different, but there will be similarities Early on, you're like, yo, this guy's different. He's going to be it. There are guys in their second season where you're like, okay, I get it. Yeah, he's it. He's he's the guy. He's next in line. We saw it with Lamar last year. But unlike Lamar, what happened? Carson Wentz gets injured. And it wasn't, again, we're talking, I think he was an ACL tear, maybe MCL. And this weird, weird type of injury. And what ended up happening, what happening was the Eagles continued their success into an entire, into a Super Bowl victory. They took Nick, Nick Foles out, played Tom Brady in the Super Bowl, in one of the better Super Bowls of all time. Came down to the last drive for the Patriots. Tom Brady is strip sacked, fumbled, and the Eagles win their first NFL Super Bowl. And then everybody's thinking, okay, well, you know, it's an ACL. It's fine. 
We're going to get this young superstar back, and we're our, the trajectory of our team with Peterson as the head coach. Oh, my goodness, look out. Unfortunately, what happened the next year? Oh, Carson Wentz gets injured again. And before the first injury, I remember coming on the show, friend of the program who's a Philadelphia native, I'm asking her, I'm asking her about, yo, tell me about Carson Wentz. It seems like you guys found the next one. It sounds so wild. It was just two, three years ago. Like this is all relatively, this all happened relatively recently. And here we are now, 2020, the Philadelphia Eagles are 3-5-1. and one. Carson Wentz throws for 200 yards versus the New York Giants this past Sunday. And we're all looking around. There have been murmurs. There have been rumblings this whole season. The Eagles drafted Jalen Hurts in the second round this past draft. The second round. A quarterback. And yeah, they're using him for gadget plays right now. But make no mistake, you don't spend that type of draft capital for gadget plays. I know the Saints, they use a lot of their cap space for gadget plays. But guess what? Drew Brees is hurt. Who's getting the starts? Like, we're now in a position where it's time to look at at what's really going on with Wentz. Because last year, the excuse, I don't want to say the excuse, but the argument was, oh man, look, he doesn't have any receivers. Receivers, they're not there. And this year, the receivers, the receiving core, it's been a mass unit. There have been injuries. Guys have been coming in and out of the lineup. But when you look at some of these throws, many of these throws, honestly, you can't point the the struggles solely to the receiving group the receiver core Carson Wentz is a different player and it's amazing it's so odd to see because there are only a few times in which I can think of where a quarterback who was not solely relied upon his athleticism and I want to get this perfectly clear a lot of times and a lot of it is race right There will be quarterbacks who are only looked upon to be effective via their athleticism. So if they are injured, it's as if okay, typically what happens, a new head coach comes in, they don't want to deal with him. They don't like him. They don't think, they don't believe he deal, he fits the system. So after a few struggles or maybe another injury, okay, we're done with you. D.C., Fans, D.C., football, Washington football team fans know this hits near and dear to you guys. This is basically what happened with RG3. And, you know, I think I think it's fair to say that Carson Wentz, well, I don't know. RG3 only had one year before he was injured. In Washington, it seemed as if they were just using him because of his athleticism. And that's kind of where, you know, the split between or the rift, if you will, between the Shanahan's and RG3 and his father kind of started, right? RG3 wanted to work more as a pocket passer. The Shanahan's like, no, we want you to run. He gets hurt running in, a, in an odd play. In a play that 
is eerily similar to what happened to Carson Wentz, right? Broken play, you just run, your leg flies up in the air. And he damaged his knee, he's never been the same since. But Carson Wentz was damaged, got hurt. He looked to be the face of the league, just like RG3. But then RG3, or excuse me, then Wentz was hurt again the following season. And you've seen this reluctance to move off of him. Even though it's clear he's not the same player. Even though it's clear whatever it was that made him special just three years ago, it doesn't seem to still be there. He's, let's be honest. I'm not saying that he can never get back to being what we thought he was, but we're remo- we're like a few years removed from that initial injury, and we haven't seen that level of play yet. And in the NFC East specifically, we don't typically see this type of, I don't know, what you were going to like, I don't want to say loyalty, but the faith that they have put into Carson Wentz to consistently go back and back to him. Man, you don't see that type of, you know, trust. And what do you guys say? I know some of you guys are saying, man, I don't know if you can really compare RG3 to Carson Wentz. I don't know if you can. Like, there are a lot of comparisons there. Early on in their career. Carson Wentz and RG3. You can say whatever you want about Washington. You can say whatever you want about what has happened to RG3 since then. But during his first year, you couldn't tell me. You could not tell me that in decades there would there would not be RG3 school. Like the love affair this city had with him, and deservedly so. It was unlike anything I've ever seen. In fact, you could look, and y'all know how much I love Russell Wilson. The start of that year, up until the injury, RG3 was doing what Russell Wilson ended up becoming. Now, Russell Wilson was a better thrower. The defense was better, right? But it, it it was the same. Strong running game, young, dynamic passer. Strong arm, right? RG3 had track speed, much faster than Russ. Obviously, Russ, with his baseball background, was much smarter in terms of sliding and getting it out of harm's way. You know, you you typically don't really get a good shot on Russ. RG3 would get lit up often. But what the Seahawks, and, and remember in that playoff game, Washington dominated Seattle off the start. They had a home playoff game. Seattle was on the road. As a Washington fan, it is not out of the question. It is not ridiculous to look at the success that the Seahawks have had and be like, yo, that was us. That's supposed to be us. With Kyle Shanahan calling plays, mind you. Imagine if it didn't go so bad in D.C. What you're seeing with San Francisco, the transfer about... Look at Kyle Shanahan, despite the Super Bowl flaws. The guy knows how to run an NFL team, obviously knows how to run an NFL offense. That was supposed to be Washington. The transfer of power from Mike to Kyle was supposed to happen here. 
I get why Washington fans look at Seattle and they're like, man, I can't stand them. That's supposed to be us. Let's not forget, let's not throw dirt on RG3's name because before he was hurt, it looked like he was going to be different, just like Carson Wentz. But it doesn't stop with RG3. Just a few years ago, remember what happened in Dallas? Tony Romo injures his collarbone, he gets hurt. Dak Prescott comes in. Well, Tony Romo injures his collarbone. The Cowboys have an awful season. The following year, that following draft, they draft draft Dak Prescott, right? I believe that's how the how it went out. Tony Romo then gets hurt again. Dak comes in, and the Cowboys don't fall off a cliff. The Cowboys still look good. Dak showing, even though he's a rookie, even with a reduced playbook, he's looked like, oh, man, this young guy's got something. It was to the point where people were saying, if Tony Romo gets healthy, you can't put him back in the game. You have to let Dak run with this team. And I'm thinking to myself, that's absurd. I believe Tony Romo even came out and was like, look, when I get back, it's still Dak's team. Tony Romo had to say that. That doesn't make sense. Tony Romo was a better quarterback than Dak Prescott. And Tony Romo ended up retiring, so it didn't really become much of an issue. But Tony Romo, I believe, didn't take the job back. They just rolled with Dak, which, again, made no sense because Romo was better. But in this division, when you get hurt, and if it's just even by the slightest margin, it looks like you may have lost something. We get you out of here. You can go all go back to Kurt Warner, Eli. Kurt Warner started the season with the Giants very well. Giants and Eli Manning's first season. And then I believe Kurt had a shoulder issue. And though he may not have missed time, it affected his play. He didn't want to give up his spot because everybody knew what was going to happen. You go down, you're done. Kurt knew it. The entire New York City metropolitan area knew it. The entire NFL knew it. If you go down, if your play, right, drops, even the smallest, you're going to get replaced. My favorite quarterback as a child, Randall Cunningham, and we saw it there. Now, obviously, he tore his leg up. But the Eagles were like, all right, man, we off you, bro. But for whatever reason, in 2020, we have seen Carson Wentz struggle week after week after week for consecutive years now. You can't blame the receivers. This isn't last year. This has been a steady erosion of time. And it's, you know, I've never had knee surgery before. So, I mean, I can't speak to it. But you have seen so many athletes come back from this. And you can literally pinpoint where the change happens. It goes from the knee surgery, that following year he gets re-injured, and then ever since, it's never quite been the same once that we saw early on in his career. And now, the Eagle, you can't tell me the Eagles haven't noticed it. They drafted a quarterback in the second round. They paid him a lot of money. I get it. The investment has been made. But each week that you roll them out there, it looks worse. Either he's hurt or he's not the same player. 
If he's hurt, rest him. If something is wrong, get it fixed, get it looked at. Let us know because we don't then have to look at this being like, man, what's happening right now? Because short of an injury, he looks like a completely different player. He looks like his confidence sometimes, his shot is not the same as it once was. And of course, how could it be? He heard the rave. He heard people rave about him. He saw the team win a Super Bowl without him. I can only imagine what it's like in a city like Philadelphia that, that is honest with you. One of the reasons why they loved Sam Hankey to talk about a previous quarter, they respected the honesty. They're smart. They're smart fans out there. They get it. They also understand what they're watching. They also understand, hold on, this ain't it. They also can, they have eyes like we all do. Whatever is going on with Carson Wentz, it ain't what they signed up for. And if the Eagles don't figure this thing out sooner or later, it's only a matter of time before the quarterback controversy revs up to an entire level that we haven't seen in years. And it's because they're tiptoeing around the subject. They're, they're afraid to rip the Band-Aid off. You don't draft the quarterback in the second round when you have your franchise quarterback of the future. You just don't do it. Something is going on in Philadelphia, and we all can see it. I was on this show raving about Carson Wentz. He's the future of the league. Oh, my goodness. This guy's got MVP written all over him. Just like that, things change in the NFL. When you're playing that violent of a sport, oh, my goodness, you can't count your chickens before they hatch. And just like that, you've got a whole new crop of young quarterbacks who have taken the mantle of being the future face of the league, including the actual face. He's not the future face. He's the face of the league. And barring injury, he's going to be that way for a few decades, for a decade plus. Mahomes I'm speaking about. It happened so fast. It happened so fast. But for whatever reason, the urge to make the switch has been much slower this instance in Philadelphia than what we're typically used to, particularly in the NFC East. I want to thank you all for rocking with me this week, man. We had an action-packed show. So much happening. I know the NBA offseason is going off like fireworks on the 4th of July. It, it seems like Drew Holiday has been on the move. We have so much to discuss. It looks like Robert Covington, we talked about the Rockets for a while. He's now on the move. So it's definitely a rebuild in Houston. So much to discuss. First off, I want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. Make sure you guys download and subscribe to the Quarterly Report Podcast. I'm assuming most of you have done that if you're listening to the show right now, but make sure we spread the word, right? Go to Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you listen to the show. Write a small brief review of what you liked about the show. Tell me, tell your friends, tell the world why you enjoy the Quarterly Report Podcast. And like I said, let's help spread the word as well to make sure everyone is aware of, in my biased opinion, the best independent sports podcast out there. But also head on over to Instagram, IG, and follow me over there at Quarterly Report. Each week I have a segment called 
overtime where i give a brief kind of recap of some things that have happened in the sports or entertainment world that i did not get to on this show who knows what i talk about this week because there's so much happening again the nba offseason is in full full display right now and it's going crazy i'm sure your guys' notifications are blowing up with woes and sham bombs but it's it's a, it's a pretty phenomenal time in the sports calendar. It's a little bit different this year as everything else has been. But make sure you follow me on IG. Make sure you download and subscribe and leave a review for me to keep an eye on all the things that we've got coming up. I'm sure I'll be breaking down more NBA coverage. And you can always bet that there will be NBA talk next week and more for another episode of the Quarterly Report Podcast. Y'all be safe. Wear your masks. Wash your fucking hands, and I'll catch you guys back here next Tuesday.